0: You are listening to Hypercritical. It's episode number 65 of this, a weekly talk show, ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse. Like I said, it's episode number 65. Today is Friday, April 27th, 2012. I'm Dan Benjamin. I want to say thanks very much to our two sponsors who we will tell you about more as the program goes on at uh, SourceBits.com and Squarespace.com. Thanks very much to them. And also to Joint.com for making the bandwidth for this show possible so that you could download it from the safety and comfort of your own home. Good day to you, Captain Syracuse. Now, is John is it sh- John short for something?
1: Didn't we do this already? I don't I recall it. I'm pretty sure we did, but no, it's not short for
0: okay, anything. It's just John. I like it. That's right. right run don't, need it.
1: don't need anything. That's enough. Is that enough? That's enough.
0: Sure. More than enough. Yeah. You could drop the H. No, that's that's bad. Okay,
1: age is distinguished.
0: I like it. I'm not, I'm just. It's just an idea.
1: So I do have follow up today, but uh, I thought I would start with something that could be a topic, but it fits in the follow up kind of segment. Thought we'd talk a little bit about WWDC.
0: You did get your tickets. Let's just get that out there. You got them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I kind of knew Wednesday was going to be the day the tickets would go on sale. My previous theory based on no information was that they would go on sale a similar time to when they went on sale last year. So around the 28th, uh, I was waiting for them to come out. And that didn't happen. And I'm like, okay, so now I have no idea when they're going to be. And then I started to hear, I heard things, things about Wednesday. And so come Wednesday, I'm like, what should I do on Wednesday? Uh, Should I wake up early and make sure I get to work by nine o'clock so I can be there, you know, t- to buy tickets or should I just stay home and, you know, if they, they'll go on sale at nine. I'll buy them, take five minutes and then be a little bit late to work. And I decided to wake up early. So I woke up early, got, got headed out to work. So I'm sure I would be there by nine o'clock. And at eight 40 sitting in my car, I had my phone out and sitting in the little, you know, center console bin. The little thing goes off. I look, it's the WWDC alerts tweet. And I said a very bad word very loudly in my car because at that point I was sitting in front of a light in traffic, not moving. And I hadn't moved in a while. And I continued to sit there watching that light cycle change over and over, inching up half a car (laughs) length, three or four feet. What was it? Uh, 18 minutes, basically. I sat there looking at that light. Uh, but luckily, I had a contingency plan. My contingency plan was that, well, first of all, I had already signed my wife up for WWC alerts as well. Uh, and the second contingency plan was to just get in touch with her and have her buy tickets from wherever she is on the iPhone 4S that she got for Christmas. Right. That's what happened. I called her. Uh, I said they're for sale. I gave her my ABC login information. And uh, she bought tickets for me. And so by the time I actually got to work, like 25 minutes later... Uh, I all I had left to do was you know hotel and plane which was more expensive this year than last year it was kind of a shame yeah although this year they had the thing where Apple maybe they had it last year I just didn't know about it Apple has discounted rates for hotels uh, last year I bought through one of those reseller services that gives you like a discount and that uh, ended up being very cheap so I didn't look for Apple's thing this year Apple had their own rates for attendees it was slightly cheaper than you would have got if you went through on your own uh, so i'm staying exactly the same place i was staying last year which is a little far away from me but i'll survive
0: do you want to tell, tell me offline which place that is because i must i must know these things
1: all right uh, and th- the story this week about wdc is not about whether i got my ticket but it's about all of the complaining and gnashing of teeth about
0: everybody on the west yeah. coast you mean
1: just every like even the people who got tickets, some of them just think it's ridiculous. you know I got tickets, and I think it's kind of silly and it's just kind of soul searching about what what's going on with wwc what is what's the purpose of this Obviously there's way more demand than there is supply The, the tickets sold out in two hours. If you graph this like two thousand and eight was the first time they sold out or something, and then it was like they sold out in two weeks and then they sold out in two days, then they sold out in 12 hours. Now they sold out in two hours. If you graph that, you can see like soon they'll be selling out, you know, in five years from now, they'll be selling out in three microseconds or something. <laughs> Obviously, that's not possible because of the speed of the uh, website they have selling them. But in general, it's like th- we have a problem here in terms of supply and demand. And some people come at all sorts of things like, oh, the, uh, lots of people have plans designed to make sure that they get a ticket and other people don't. Oh, it should be based on the age of your ADC account. It should be based on if you have a successful app in the store. Uh, all sorts of things like that. Some One person even suggested a lottery, which I think is a great way to make nobody happy <laughs> because that's just, yeah. Uh, you know, so this is kind of like the WWC Alerts service in general. This was a service that somebody put up. On, I, I should have known these people's name, but I don't. But there was a Twitter account, WWC Alerts, and you can go to a website and you enter in your, your phone number and they promise to send you a text. Well, when you were saying you did, you did
0: get one, right? You did receive your... So I, yeah. I, I ha, I, now, again... I signed up for this just so that I could participate in the excitement of the event. I didn't have any intention of buying tickets, and I didn't buy any tickets, uh, but I still have yet to receive my text message. I'm waiting, hoping that I will still you, get it.
1: You're not going to get it. Oh. I, well, I, I guess it could be held up in the carrier, but so the, the, the thing people are annoyed about with the texts is, I hey, I got my text telling me tickets are for sale, but I got them after the thing was already sold out. So that kind of defeats the purpose. And so they weren't sure who to be mad about. Should I be mad at WWC alerts because they didn't send me my text until the sickest was sold out? Should I be mad at my carrier because the text was sent, but the carrier held onto it before sending it to me? And that's a possibility. So I asked on Twitter what the deal is with the, with the uh, alerts thing. And again, by the way, this is a free service done out of the goodness of someone's heart. You know, I don't think anyone has any realistic expectation that they, they're owed anything by this free service that they got. Uh, and the person who runs it said that they sent out tweets in 1st come 1st serve fashion, or FIFO fashion for all you computer scientists out there, Uh, which I think is completely fair, because the most rabid, crazy people who signed up, as soon as they saw something called WWC alerts that would text you, uh, they got their their text sent first. They could still have problems if their carrier held on to it, or if their phone wasn't on, or all sorts of other things. But uh, I would imagine the vast majority of people who are getting their texts later, my wife included, uh, it's because they signed up later. So I signed up the second I saw that Twitter account. And I signed my wife up, I think, just later in that same day. So it wasn't that long of a gap between when I signed up and when my wife signed up that she didn't get her text until long, long after I got mine. So, and, and then, of course, there's the the wild card of carriers holding texts for some amount of time, which no one can, you know, make any determination out of. So the WWC Alerts is like WWC itself in that the current strategy they're using is the people who want it more uh, have a higher chance of getting it. They're not guaranteed, but it's kind of like if you have a, a movie theater thing where it's like, Oh, well, people line up overnight to, to go see some movie or line up overnight to get into Mac world keynote or whatever. Right. Those are the people who are the most crazy and rabid and it's first come, first serve and they get in. And if you don't get in, you could say, Oh, this is BS. I'm not going to stay up over. You know, it's, it's kind of sorting itself out in terms of enthusiasm. Now, Again, it's not a guarantee because there are plenty of people who signed up for the service the second they saw it and had like multiple alarms and had their own things set up to scrape Apple's website and right. tell them in every possible way, you know, and told all their friends to text them and tell them, and they just like they happen to be like out of phone range or asleep or they got the text too late or you know there's so many things that can that can stop you from getting and those people are sad and I I would be very sad about that too. So what's the what's the solution here? And I think this has started a lot of. Soul searching, at least amongst the people who didn't get tickets, about WWDC itself. And has this conference outgrown its usefulness or in its current incarnation, it's not, it doesn't make sense anymore or like something needs to change about it, it seems like. Because, you know, if it's, if every year an increasingly smaller fraction of the total people who want to go end up going, that seems bad to me. Because even if those are the most enthusiastic fraction, Is that what Apple wants out of this? I was trying to think about what what the point of WWC is. Um, So there's a couple of aspects here. Obviously, one is that developers go there to get help with doing their job. Uh, They learn things about developing for the platforms that Apple promotes. They get to ask questions in person to people who write the code that they use to create their applications. And... Presumably all of this is more valuable than the same thing you would get from developer services or from watching the videos or you know sending emails or whatever. Uh, because even if you could email directly to the guy who wrote the particular framework you're using, you're having some sort of core foundation problem, and you could talk to the guy who wrote core foundation, was the original author of it and the main lead on that on the team that created it and knows a lot about it, right? Even if you could email that guy directly, that doesn't scale because that guy doesn't have time to answer all your emails. So here at WWDC, that guy takes a week off of his normal job, basically, to answer in person as many questions as he can. But that's limited by how many people attend the conference. So if if they tried to go like virtual, like, okay, for this week, all app employees are available for virtual WWDC. Everybody email away. Uh, that doesn't work. Because the whole point is that dude can't answer 8,000 emails a day. He can only you know talk to a limited number of people a day. And the attendance of WWDC kind of matches up with how you know, how much can, you know, th- you talk to that guy. Some people are harder to get to others. but basically over the course of an entire week, if you are one of the lucky 5,000 or whatever attendees of WWDC, you can find and talk to the one guy you want to at Apple or the two guys or whoever. You can make it happen. But if it was 10,000 people, would that be true? 20,000, 30,000, 70,000 like packs? Uh, at a certain point, there aren't enough Apple employees for the people to get what they wanted out of it. But but clearly with with the... The size that it is now, that's something that the conference is for. It's for developers who are lucky enough to go to get extra special help with their applications and to learn things in a way that they couldn't without the conference. Uh, the second aspect is Apple is evangelizing to developers. This is a place for Apple to persuade its developers and the development community to do whatever it is Apple wants them to do. Adopt this API. Stop using this API. Revise your applications for the iPad, for the Retina iPhone. Uh, Get your applications off of Carbon and onto Cocoa. Whatever the thing is that Apple is trying to get all the developers to do to bring its platform forward, here is a chance for them to evangelize directly to them. And I think Apple also believes that this is a better way to evangelize in terms of effectiveness than sending them emails or communicating through technical documentation and saying things are deprecated or, you know what I mean? Because this is engineers talking to engineers in person and that there is, you know, we're human beings and there is a persuasive aspect of that that's more persuasive than than uh, hearing the same thing on a video or reading it in an email or reading it in technical documentation. Having a person up on stage pitching basically what Apple wants them to do is very effective. And presumably, if these are the most rabid, uh, enthusiastic developers who really want to get these tickets, they are the, you know, the influencers and the real hardcore developers of the rest of the community. So if you can convince these guys, it will spread outward from them to the rest of the community. Uh, and another aspect of this is that this is one of the... WWDC is one of the rare, maybe the only time that you can get you can get Apple as a collective entity to explain to you why they do things in pretty much if, you know, in a public place, like if you're in developer technical (laughs) services, not in like a
0: a late night bar where somebody's
1: been given a lot of alcohol or even like a technical support incident where you, maybe the guy will talk to you about stuff, but that's like all under NDA and it's just between you. These people are on a stage or in a public place and you can ask them about it and they'll, They'll at this point they will explain to you, Oh, we did this because X, Y, and Z. There's a public version of that in the keynotes when jobs would go up and say, We believe that the future is X, Y, and then you know, there's like the public pitch that they want the New York Times to write about, the big message for their thing. But at a developer level, you can say, Why is this API like this? Is it because it's just a leftover and you haven't converted it from C to Objective C yet? Or is it just because like you can find out if it's just because the head of that team really likes C APIs better than Objective C and like you can argue with them about it? Like when else do you get a chance for them to actually tell you why they're doing things? And developers, I feel like, feel they can do it in this sort of safe environment because who really cares? Like, it's not going to be a New York Times story about C versus Objective-C APIs, right? So it's not a <laughs> PR problem. And they'll tell you. They'll be like, well, you know, I mean, maybe they'll tell you like, quote-unquote, off the record. They're not telling you because you're pressed, but like, they'll, they'll be upfront with you and they'll, they'll acknowledge problem areas. Another thing you almost never see or you talk to, Apple developers, engineers, and even whole heads of departments, and they will be very candid to you at WWDC about, oh, yeah, that's crappy. We totally need to fix that. And oh, that was a big mistake. We, we wanted to do that, but we, we found out it was a horrible mistake, and now we're stuck with trying to deprecate that API. Or, uh, you know, depending on how much how many drinks you've had with the people, maybe they'll even tell you, oh, like, I was a jerk, and he insisted on doing this this way, and, and we changed it and did it that way, and he got annoyed and, went and changed to a different group. Like, all the way down to individual gossip, but, but all the way up to on stage in front of a room full of people and granted all this stuff is under NDA too but it's like more public because there's hundreds or thousands of people there it's as far as I'm aware it's a unique opportunity to get candid communication with an entity that is uh, perfected the art of stonewalling everybody and only letting out very controlled pieces of information uh, so all if that's what WWFC is about these things I described what is there anything that you, that you can replace it with that replace or multiple things maybe that you replace it with that provides all the same things in different configurations. Like if you had a virtual conference where they streamed everything live, but then they took like live video questions, then could you ask your questions in person then? Uh, But then you wouldn't be seeing them like in person in person and you couldn't have a drink with them afterwards. And does the evangelizing that work as well? And does that not scale because everyone can't get a chance to answer their question? Or do you do the virtual conference and then also an in-person conference? Or do do you just change Apple's policies around communicating with developers to be more open all the time so WWC isn't the only place where you can get this candid exchange of information? I don't know what the answer is. Or maybe you just keep going like this, or do you double the size of WWC and it still works when it's doubled, but it wouldn't work if it's tripled or quadrupled? Uh, we've seen it happen with many shows, with South by Southwest and with E3, where these shows go through a cycle where they're, they're popular, they get bigger and bigger, and then they implode. Uh, and then they kind of go away for a while and then come back. So South by Southwest hasn't imploded yet, but I, I see that out in their future. E3 did implode, went away, came back. But the implosion of E3 kind of led, not directly, but indirectly, it helped boost PAX uh, to have like an alternate conference for that type of thing. And there are tons of other conferences that alternatives to WWC, but it's tough to really ever come close to replacing it because it's the one that's officially sponsored by Apple, where the Apple people are there and talking to you. Uh, so I don't, I don't know what the answer is here. It's just uh, I think this is an issue that will come up a lot in conversations at WWC this year, and I think the people at Apple probably are thinking about it. I, I think they've got a few more years they can continue like this, but at a certain point, it becomes kind of silly, and maybe even the people who get to go might be starting to get a little cranky about it and saying, this is kind of ridiculous. You know, this year, I'm not even going to try to stay up and get my text and try to get a ticket. And, you know. And of course, the simple solution that I always bring up that nobody likes, including me, is so you have a supply and demand problem? Raise the price. Takes care of it right away, doesn't it? Keep raising the price until you just barely sell out. Problem solved. Uh, not really, because that's favoring rich developers from big companies. And is that really who Apple wants to talk to? Are they the biggest influencers for Apple's purposes? Probably not. Uh, so, if that was the only problem, if it was just a, a supply and demand problem, they could solve it just by raising the price. But I think they'd have to raise it pretty darn high actually to get the to get it not to sell out or just just to barely sell out. Who wants to spend? Ten thousand dollars for a ticket to WWDC, you know, twenty thousand dollars. How high does it have to be to keep people away? Uh, I do not recommend that approach, but that would be the obvious uh, economist solution to this problem, where there's supply and demand imbalance. So that was longer than I thought it would be, but I thought I thought that was worth talking about. It did you do a talk show already this week? Or you talked about WWDC? Yeah.
0: yeah, we we talked about it a little bit, and you know, John indicated that he got his ticket and did, didn't really have uh, much of a solution himself yeah. for what yeah, is clearly it, very clearly a problem
1: yeah I, and I, I don't know how big of a problem it is or if it's just because we're close to the event but the fact that the people even the people who got tickets think it's a problem I think indicates that it really is. And Apple probably agrees. This is another thing we'll be able to talk to them about WWDC, whoever's in charge of this type of thing. Talk to the head of developer relations guy and, and if they go, yeah, we know it's a problem and they'll probably discuss it with you or they'll say, what are you talking about? What problem seems fine to me? And then you, you will have learned something that you wouldn't have learned otherwise.
0: You know, when WWDC was started, you know, Apple was not in the position that it's in today, right now. And you... You have to think back to the way that it was. It, is that I don't I don't know when what year it actually was the first year that it sold out. But there were plenty of years before I ever went where it didn't sell out, uh, or where it was you know just something that only only the most interested, dedicated uh, Apple developers would even consider going to something like this. You know, people who were already making a living uh, from building a Mac application. That these were the only people who would even consider going to something like that. And they would go, and it was great, and it was small, it was personal. And then, even even before iOS happened, even before there was an iPhone, it started to get much more popular. And now it's become something that's clearly unwieldy. I wonder if they would have even created WWDC... In the first place, if they were such a large company, it would have been something completely different that they would have made.
1: I think one smart thing they have done is not in the past few years reacted in the straightforward manner of, so there's more demand for our conference. Let's sell more tickets and buy a bigger venue because that's what South by Southwest and E3 both did. Yeah, right. It was just money, money, money. So at the very least, Apple has shown at least the wisdom to say, I think they probably have increased attendance a lot since the thing started, but they haven't gone well let's just turn that knob up until you know what I mean there's not a 20,000 person WAC and I think they could sell 20,000 tickets if they wanted to they would just need a much bigger venue but they haven't done that to to Apple's credit so in typical Apple manner uh, the default action is no action and no communication until they figure out what the heck they're going to do they don't scramble they don't do the obvious thing that they think everyone should do just make the conference bigger and, and you know put it in a Superdome or something I don't know so I'm not sure what's what's happening there, but we all have we all have our eye on it. And it's interesting that we have our eye on it more now than we did last year, because last year was like what they sold out in two days or something. It just maybe there were fewer people who wanted tickets who didn't get them or that was the impression. But once it gets down to a couple of hours, I guess we've crossed the threshold of of uh, anger and, and uh, resentment in the community that now now we're all talking about this.
0: So here's something that I want to mention that it it's obvious, but it's something that's worth mentioning. And that is a- Apple does not – Apple probably loses money or at least they lose productivity. So in that sense, they're probably losing money on WWDC. This is not a money-making – this is not – even a blip in where they make their money from. Unlike South by Southwest, which is the conference, it exists to do the conference. That is, you know, it is a conference. PAX is a conference. So those things need to make money. Apple doesn't care about making money from this. and They could charge anything or they could charge nothing for these tickets. It's it's not going to cost them very much. Uh, Yes, it costs a lot of money. And for most companies, they couldn't conceive of doing something like this the way that Apple could, but with with the numbers that just came out this week that they made last quarter, this is this is a this is nothing. You know, this is really not even a, a a tiny little blip on their chart. It's not about the money for them.
1: It's almost like the price of admission is solely there as a deterrent. Because you're right that like they don't care about the money, I, and I don't. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do make money on the conference. First of all, but I don't think that's why they charge the price they do. I think they charge the price they do to give some kind of control on the, yeah. like you know serious applicants only kind of thing. And by the way, uh, Zachy Zach Yahoo in the chat room says last year sold out in twelve hours, not in two days. Uh, but apparently twelve hours wasn't the threshold. I remember last year hearing that crankiness about international people who like hey I was asleep in Australia and I missed it. So that makes sense with the twelve hour thing. But it wasn't the same as you know two hours is a different order of magnitude, I guess. Uh, but, but yeah, it's not and, and not only is it not money making, it's different than conferences like certainly different than PAX and E3 and probably also different than, than South by Southwest in that those conferences not only exist to make money, but they're put on by a conference organizer and then people pay the conference organizer to show at the conference. You know, game makers want to have a big booth and they pay lots of money to show put their booths on on the show floor and everything. That's how they make money because it's organized by somebody and then people come and participate to get access to the attendees. But there's no dynamic like that at all at Apple. Apple's not selling floor space to a third-party vendor. I think they have done that in the past, but like that's not their money-making scheme. It's an Apple conference put on by Apple for you, the developer. It's a direct relationship between there's no third-party conference organizer entity or if there is Apple's hiding it behind the scenes who's trying to make money off of this. It is Apple and you. Apple talks to you, you talk to Apple. And they're you know it's not... A clearinghouse for third parties to give money to get access to all the developers who were there. And that makes it very different than I think it's even different than like I've never been to Java One or anything like that, but that strikes me as something where vendors would really want to display. And you know, it's not just a you know, Google I.O. is closer because I think it's mostly Google talking to uh to people about Google stuff. So it is a kind of a weird thing. It's almost like I don't know, I got seminar like as part as a paid developer you get special training that you're allowed you know what i mean it's like a it's a direct part of your developer membership that you just pay extra for and now you get this extra stuff rather than going to a show to see lots of stuff you know and then of course as, as gruber pointed out because i think i did hear this part of the show you know there is there's also the keynote which is a separate thing for the press uh it's not really part of WWC, but it's like the last vestige of the old way that Apple used to do things where they would have keynotes at big events to announce things, you All
0: know?
1: Right. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have to move on from WWC if I want to have a chance to even getting through my follow-up this episode.
0: All right, let's do our first sponsor then, if, if you will allow it. Go for it. It's SourceBits, software design and development services for iPhone, mobile, Mac, and the web, of course, iPad. That's it. I mean, you know what? I could stop right there. Say go to SourceBits.com. That's enough. Because that's what they do. This is design. what they call design-led engineering. This is this is what they're all about. You work with these guys, their entire process, the books are open. You say, I, I have an idea for this amazing application. Doesn't matter what it is. It's an iPad app, great. They can build that. It ties into a, a web backend, they'll build that. You want an Android client later on, they'll build that too. They've done it. They know how to do this stuff. And design-led engineering, this means designers drive the entire development process. They're not just there to, you know, make some kind of a concept and melt it into the background. They're designers, they're present from conceptualization through every stage of development and QA. They're plugged in, they're available to you, they work with you to take whatever that idea is that you have and they make it happen. They've got amazing talent in there. And uh, don't take my word for it. Go to sourcebits.com and check it out. If you have an idea for an app, look at their portfolio. Look at the services they offer. Look at the talent they have on board. That's all, that's it. I mean, dude, by now, if you if you haven't gone to sourcebits.com, I don't know what to say. I'm upset. Let's just go to the next, let's just go to the next uh, topic. What do you have next?
1: I see you threw in a show notes link for the fridge toaster.
0: Yes is that, a, is I, that a permissible
1: yeah I'm behind on my listening to Apple earnings calls so I haven't actually listened to the call yet but this was Tim Cook in the Apple quarterly earnings call in which they told everyone that they made all the money in the world again uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. someone <laughs> some some person asked one of those inane analyst questions that involved what was the was the question about like combining the iPad and a laptop I don't know one of those one of those things like what do you think of this Tim how about? You know, so And he and his response was about the the wisdom of combining unlike things. So he has the quote in the article. You can converge a toaster in a refrigerator, but those things are probably not going to be pleasing to the user. Right. So I can't say much more about the content of the statement because I haven't listened to the thing yet. But I believe the reason you put the link in the story, and this I think it was the New York Times link, is because the picture they chose for the toaster in this story, it's in the New York Times Bits blog, is... The model up from the toaster that I have, it looks the same except for there's a double button on the front. This is the model with convection. Right. Uh, And many people were wondering why of all the toasters they could have put a picture of, they put that one in there. Are they 5 by 5 fans? Are they fans of the toaster episode or do they just simply Google for the word toaster and end up like that? Or is this the the default rich person's toaster now?
0: I I don't know. I think we had something to do with it though.
1: You would think if, if that was true, they would have, you know, whoever wrote it would have, Nick Winfield would have, like, sent us a Twitter message or done some sort of thing like that. I don't know. But that's it. That's it for that. <laughs> I thought it was curious, too. I, I will have probably more to say about what Tim Cook had to say if, if he really did reveal anything interesting in his responses. But I'll, at this point, since i have been listening to Tim Cook on earnings calls for a long time, I, I would be very surprised if he let anything slip yeah you know he's he was he's much more controlled than Steve Jobs was on the earnings calls you it's hard to get him to go off on something that he didn't plan to talk about and i think I think Tim does this thing where not that he has uh like on you know like a late night talk show where they have agreed on questions beforehand but or that he tell he wants people to think but he knows certain questions are going to be asked and he 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 leads he wants to say something about a particular topic and he will allow it to happen organically. Like I want to make a statement about netbooks. And I know that someone's probably going to ask me about netbooks. So rather than in my statements or in an answer to an unrelated question going off on some screed about netbooks, I'll just sit back and wait patiently for the first guy to ask about netbooks. And then I'll say what I have to say about netbooks. So it, so it looks more organic. I, I get the feeling that he does that. And I always wonder like, if no, none of the analysts asked about netbooks, would he like offer it himself like as part of an aside and another answer or something? So I'll I'll listen to this one and maybe have more to say about it. I think you uh, get the gist of it from what you've already read. I mean, obviously, yeah, you should listen to it, but... Yeah, those learning calls can be boring when they're just reading off numbers, but, yeah. you know, I'll fit it in. That's why I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, Karsten Burns wrote in, uh, among many other people, pointing me to this Paris Pinball Parking advertisement, where this is, a, this is an advertisement for some Ford parking assist technology that helps you parallel park better. Uh, but the fact that they set up in Paris... I don't know if that's random or not, but they say, you know, people in Paris will, you know, will do whatever it takes to get into a parking space. And so they put two cars next to each other and put little sensors on their bumpers and put a big scoreboard above it so that when people go to try to park there, every time you tap one of the car in front of you or in back of you, your score goes up uh, or is it down? I don't remember. Anyway, I put a link to the YouTube video, which again is an ad for Ford, uh, but it's also funny and it reinforces our meme about parking in Paris involving hitting other cars. (laughs) So I thought it was worth mentioning. Will Haynes, who apparently is in Tokyo, I think he's, he's communicated to us many times, but I just went to his blog and it's like, hi, I'm Will Haynes from Tokyo. Well, hello, Will Haynes in Tokyo. That's cool. Did an awesome post about the iPhone screen size stuff that we've been discussing in the past few shows. It's the same type of thing of like, let's make the screen taller, according to that rumor. And he's doing the thing that uh, several, I and several other people have mentioned of like, okay, try to keep the phone the same size. Just make the phone bigger and make the area above and below the phone uh, smaller. And he did a really nice 3D mock-up of it, of just basically taking, uh, it's kind of his own design. He's taken the current look of the iPhone 4S, stretched the screen, shrunk the area above and below it, uh, and it kind of fits. Like, he's done the exact measurements of saying, if this was exactly what the rumor said, and it was, you know, exactly this height, what are the specs on it? If it was exactly uh, 1152 pixels high, this is what the screen would look like. And he, for for the design, he decided to try to do a little bit of a tweak. It mostly looks like the 4S, but he made it slightly thinner than the 4S is. What it like 8.96 millimeters instead of 9.34 millimeters and made it feel even thinner by shrinking the antenna band to be thinner and then having kind of a rounded back. If you look at the picture, you might think, oh, that looks thicker, but you're thinking that the band is the same thickness on the 4S. Actually, the band is thinner and that's trying to lead to like it feels thinner in your hand because the edge is tapered. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to take a look at this post and read it. And he made a cool video of the thing flying around and stuff. Excellent, excellent job. And when I look at it, it doesn't look crazy to me. It looks, I, when I look at it, my thumb feels a little cramped of like, oh, would I be able to contort myself to get down to that slightly smaller home button? Or, you know, can I still reach all the corners with my thumb? I guess having it in my hand would help me know what it's like more. But it doesn't look crazy. It doesn't look like a really long, tall iPhone. He's, he's kept the height basically the same. Just, again, just shrunk the area, and it looks like there's plenty of room for the FaceTime camera, plenty of room for the, the speaker that goes in your ear. Uh, it, it, it doesn't look crazy. The home button will have to shrink a little bit or get more oblong or something, but I was excited to see this picture to see what is possible. Now, I will say that I think it looks a bit too much like the current phone. Uh, not because I think that's bad, but because I think the next iPhone will not look exactly like the iPhone 4S. Like it won't, uh, the metal band designer on the outside and just like the overall look of like it looks like a, a black rounded rectangle with a metal band around it. I think Apple wants to change. Uh, I expect a more radical change within reason, like details mostly. Like it's not going to be, you know, triangular shaped. It's still going to be a rounded, <laughs> tall rounded rectangle that they're going to try to make as thin as they can. But in the details, I think it will look different even if it's just a change in color scheme or like the back isn't the same color as the front anymore or the whole back is silver or uh the these sides are not completely vertical slab sides anymore and they taper or something like that that's what i expect from it but uh, i really like this post and i link to it in the show notes i encourage everyone to check it out and speaking of the iphone rumors many people Picked up on my hint, not during the show, but but after the show, many people picked up on my hint about it. I was saying, well, what can what's the what can you do with the iPhone to make room for this screen? Uh, if you have to start squeezing this stuff, you know, making the borders of the thing thinner, uh, is there a way that you can like move things to the edges? And I also said like maybe what if you could like for example take the microphone or speaker or camera and bury it behind the display? Is that even possible? And the big Apple nerds amongst us, uh, one of them including my friend Lee Fioc wrote in to tell me that uh, hey they a- Apple had a patent about putting a camera behind a screen and I said yes I know I know that's what I was referring to that, that this was a long time ago uh, uh, he dug up the story for me which was nice I would I would have had to google for it but uh, apparently in July 2007 there was a Apple filed a patent for a camera behind an LCD display and the idea was that it would capture images like in between the refresh events on the display with a whole bunch of you know the patent saying that it's you know We'll try to make it so that the the there's no flickering when when the photo was taken or anything like that. Like if it's continuous video, like we'll try to be good about minimizing the uh, the amount of time you need to uh, to take the picture between the display. And I think like I think the idea is that it would be imperceptible that the screen is refreshing 60 times a second and there's enough time in between each refresh to get an image without light interference. Again, just because it's a patent doesn't mean this is something that actually works. You can patent things that have that you've never actually built and that you're not sure even if they'll work you're just patenting the idea uh but this is why i was thinking of what can you bury behind the screen because of this patent and apple actually had an earlier patent i think uh several years before that about another technique to get uh, a camera behind a screen And this one involved like sticking the camera between the pixels or something like that so this is a link to apple insider story uh from a while ago it's in the show notes everyone can Check it out, and remember: when looking at any patent story, Apple patents all sorts of things, and patents do not mean that they even ever had this working, let alone that it was. They decided it was useful. Uh, I just like to fantasize about future technologies like that because it sounds cool, doesn't it? Like you just look at the screen. One of the things they promoted in the in the uh, in the patent thing is like, you know, when you're doing video conferencing, you want to look at them, and you have to like look to the upper right of your monitor, and it right. doesn't look like you're looking at the person, <laughs> or like you have a lazy eye or something. Yeah, well, so that the camera is is directly in the center of your screen. You can also put the video window in, like, can you imagine an iPad or something in the center of your screen? and Then you can look face to face with them. So that seems like that that seems like a compelling advantage. That if Apple were able to pull it off, they would they would like that, and maybe they would even advertise that. Like, finally, FaceTime face to face. Look right into the eyes of your sweetie. <laughs> so. That, that's what I was getting at in the last <laughs> one but I, I don't have high hopes for it going uh, Alex and Dronov wrote in to tell me that Tom who who is the guy who's one of whose books referred to the talking to the bear phenomenon of having talking talking yes. out your problems to an inanimate object to get through them he was apparently a guest on the Stack Overflow podcast and I listened to every single episode of the Stack Overflow podcast uh, well at least did way back then I think I, I basically went off of it once Jeff Atwood left it's not, just not the same without him. But uh, I must have heard that episode, so there's yet another possible case where talking to the bear has entered my subconscious, and that's, that's where it came out of. So I'm glad to know that uh, there are good explanations. You know, Even if I can't remember reading that Sissiman book, maybe I just heard the podcast episode. Maybe that was it. I'm an old man. It's hard to remember. Yeah. And that's it for my follow-up, except for follow-up on the gaming show last week, but that's almost kind of like a topic. we have three sponsors this week or two? Two. All right. So I can keep going? Keep going. Okay. Gaming. First, I guess this is one final little piece of follow-up that's tangentially related to gaming. I should have practiced this guy's name before I started. David I'm Sorry about that, David. Tweeted me a link to a video from Freaks and Geeks. The show one one more show that was canceled way before its time. Uh, I enjoyed that show when it was on the air. And this episode is about uh, this sec- section of this episode is about Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, it's a YouTube video, probably illegal. I don't know if it counts as fair use, but it's a pretty long segment there that shows a bunch of nerdy kids talking about D and D, and the cool kid character, the kind of you know too cool for school character, right? In in the show is in the scene with them and. And they, one of the people invites him to play D and D, and he's like, you know, D and D, it's kind of, it's not for the nerds or whatever. And so he goes and plays D and D with them, and he enjoys it because D and D is awesome. Uh, and at the end of the thing, the nerds are kind of confer with each other about this idea that, like, what's what's going on here? Like, it, are we turning him into a nerd, or or, or he, are is he turning us into cool guys? I don't know. Like, with that that dynamic, the person sent this to me because it's the same kind of thing I was talking about with gaming, where gaming was the exclusive refuge of the nerds way back when, and then and then the field opened up, and that's kind of good, and you felt like, well, more people are enjoying games, but then you're like, yeah, but wasn't this ours, and is it getting taken over by cool people, or is it the reverse? Are we making everybody into nerds, and sort of that discomfort with your clique or your little section of people thought you had a hobby all to yourself, and expanding out. Uh, so, for mostly I encourage people to watch it, because Freaks and Geeks is an awesome show, and hopefully from looking at that little segment, you will be motivated to go watch it on Netflix or get it on iTunes or I don't even know where or how it's available, uh, but I, I highly encourage checking it out. Um, so that was the appetizer for my my re- this revisit of the topic of gaming and gaming culture and the dilution of gaming culture and all the stuff that I talked about last time. Uh, as is often the case with something that I talk about on the podcast that I haven't previously written about, because writing kind of makes you sort of sort through your ideas and figure out what you really think, whereas talking as Merlin uh, frequently says, is like the first draft of his ideas. You kind of talk it out and you're, you're trying to learn while you're talking. You know, The act of doing it helps you come to some sort of conclusion and discard ideas or whatever. And I think Last Show definitely did that because I spent a lot of time trying to look at this issue of gaming and the hardcore gamers versus the casual gamers and how that's evolved over time as the market had expanded. And I looked at it from all sorts of different angles. And he used lots of analogies trying to illuminate the various aspects of my points and some of the analogies were like like movie watching, wine tasting, sports uh, things where time investment can lead to greater enjoyment you know seeing more movies helps you appreciate new movies more, tasting lots of wines helps you sort of understand the different aspects of wine, watching a lot of a particular sport can help you appreciate the game more, these were all examples of like gaming, things where time investment leads to greater enjoyment Uh, and I think People mostly accept that idea that investing time leads to experience and knowledge in whatever you're investing in, which leads to greater enjoyment of whatever that thing is. Uh, but the problem with analogies is both my problem as the person offering them and the problem of listeners who hear them is that when you're offering analogies, it's if you're not careful to highlight which aspect that you think is applicable to the thing you're, you're, you know you're saying, this is analogous to that, people may think that you're trying to say the entire thing is analogous. And that's my fault for miscommunicating. And on the, on the flip side, there are people who believe that analogies are useless unless the two things are analogous in every possible way. And they will say, well, that analogy makes no sense because this is different than that in aspects X, Y, and Z. And to those people, I say analogies don't have to match up in every possible way because then it would just be identity and that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, so there is a balance to be struck there. So I don't know if my analogies were apt or not, but the, in, in hindsight, after the episode was over and looking at the feedback, my crucial mistake in trying to Think about and talk about uh, this topic is that only one of the things that I was making an analogy with, and I think it might have been the first thing, but only one of the things that I was making an analogy with is directly is directly applicable to the idea of games. And that's movies, because the key point is that games I was saying were a, uh, you know, strange form of art in that they're different than other forms of art. And you know, I would say that sports and wine tasting are not forms of art. People can argue with me and, and about that or whatever, but I firmly believe that games are a form of art and people can also argue about that. But that was my key point there. Uh, it's, an, it's an art form where time investment is not sufficient for full appreciation. It doesn't mean that you you, know, you you do get more enjoyment out of it if you invest time. You do get knowledge and experience, but that that's necessary but not sufficient for full enjoyment. And I thought that was weird because... I have trouble thinking of any other art form that's like that. Certainly sports qualifies that, wine tasting, all the other hobbies and skills and activities also require skills. And many people pointed that out in the email. And it was clear that I was not focusing this enough. And if I had written it, I think I would have read it over and, and realized this. That it's the fact that I'm considering games an art form. And like can you think of another art form that requires skill? to get full appreciation of it, not just knowledge. And you know, you can say, well, knowledge is a skill and being smart is a skill and not just time investment and experience. But mostly when I'm talking about skill, I'm talking about things that are not natural for the vast majority of the population to do. Things that have to be learned. And a lot of it is physical things. But you know, th- that if you take, take a cross-section of the entire population and say, who would find it easy to pick up the skills to do this thing, even if there isn't art that requires skills. And a lot of arts don't require skills that uh you know physical skills like kj healing chat room says dancing i think that's a good example because dancing is is an art form and it does require a certain minimum amount of skills to get the full enjoyment out of uh, and just and like gaming i would say you don't have to be an expert dancer to get not every ounce of the enjoyment like super expert dancers are getting like a slightly more enjoyment than you are of, or maybe not depending on if it becomes like work for them and not uh, and not a hobby but you can get most of the enjoyment. I would say dancing, the history of dancing across all of humanity shows that most human beings have at least a, the minimum skill set to get most of the enjoyment that you're supposed to get out of dancing, from dancing, because dancing has been around for a really, really long time. right? Uh, but I was I was saying that video games are n- possibly not unique, but novel at least, in that the forms of art, that especially since the forms of art are often compared to like, you know, writing novels, fiction and movies and stuff require so little uncommon skill. You just need to be literate and intelligent. Like it's not it, it, the, the large portion of the population has these skills. And so gaming is weird because it's an art form that requires skills that do not appear to be common in the general population. And my evidence for this is the small number of people who play and enjoy games that require these skills, uh, Basically, if you make your game require the skills that like the first crop of nerdy gamers had, that game is not going to be popular. And no matter how much gaming spreads, like, oh, gaming is everywhere now or whatever, it's revealing that certain skills that, you know, the, the original gamers or the longtime gamers have, those skills just aren't common in the general population. And if you make a game that requires them, you can't sell to lots of people. So I talked about last time the way game makers address this by making games that don't require those skills to get them out to more of an audience. It's as if uh, the very best dances required skills that so few people could do. There was like a fraction of a fraction of the percentage of the entire world could do this special dance. And this dance was particularly enjoyable. And people who are really serious about dancing say, well, you know, if you, you know, you're playing, you're doing casual dance, but you can't do a super complex. I don't think that's the way dancing is. Dancers can correct me, but... Uh, I think a, a dancer could say that if you beautifully execute a simple dance like a waltz, that's perfectly valid and a full expression of the form. Whereas gamers, or at least me, would say that some of the very best things that gaming has to offer are not uh, accessible to the general public who uh, who don't have these particular skills, even if they're willing to put in the time to get the experience and the knowledge, and you know the 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 other aspects that they can get if they're held out by their lack of. Uh, physical coordination, uh, you know, from having this experience, we would say you're not getting everything that gaming has to offer. You're you're intentionally put into like kitty gaming, where yes, it's enjoyable and you get lots of the same things, but it's not it's not the best of the best. And that's what I thought was was very novel about that. Uh, and I had many tangents about sports, where you know there are other hobbies that require skill to fully appreciate. But again, I, I'm not putting them into a, a, a form of art someone can argue with that but like there there are examples but get, even getting beyond the art thing there are sports that you can't enjoy unless you have skills that are not common in the general population again i don't think this is analogous because i don't consider sports a form of art and i don't think it's weird that sports require skills because so many of them do require uh, skills uh, but th- the same continuum exists in sports where there are sports that require skills that the majority of the general population of healthy adults have to an adequate degree to play the sports, you know, like playing catch. (laughs) That's not that that's a sport, but you can do that. And the the skills of baseball, for the most part, like even if you can't really hit, you can kind of catch and, you know, like you can get by. But there are sports like surfing where the the minimum threshold to be successful in any way, to to be able to surf to the point where people look at you and and say that guy is surfing, the amount of the population uh, that can do that is much lower than the amount of the population that can play a pickup game of baseball or, you know, touch football or basketball or any of the other sports that are more accessible. So uh, and, and again, the, these, this is not directly analogous because sports are not a form of art, but I it, it, I, I just a lot of people wrote in about sports as an example, and it, it made me think that they, sports have a similar continuum where the prevalence of the required skills in the general population defines the popularity of these things. For participation, spectating is is very different. Spectating is an entirely different thing. And I would not call spectating sports a form of art either. Uh, So it's also not analogous. But I'm talking about doing the sport yourself. How many people surf versus how many people play uh, basketball down at their gym? Uh, And I guess a lot of that has to do with, you know, proximity to waves and water. But, you know, any sport you want to pick, gymnastics or something like that, there are certain sports that uh, require skills that are not common. So I think gaming is weird because it's a form of art that require skills that are not common, and I say that to fully appreciate gaming, you can't just stick to the games that the vast majority of like. I think people who have the have the skills, and yeah, maybe they just develop the skills, but it's it's a it's a barrier to entry. If they have the skills to play the the what we consider the very best of the best games, we're getting an experience that other people are not, and it's weird that those experiences are closed off because of skills. Um, and the the phrase I kept repeating in the previous show was that it's not a value judgment. What I was trying to say with that was that it doesn't make us better people or, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a, we're better than you because we can do this thing. It's mostly, uh, I'm coming at it from a reverse perspective where it's disappointing that something you enjoy, like you can't share that enjoyment with other people. And that's why I was talking about the frustration of trying to get my wife to play games that I really enjoy or, you know, things that I thought my, my parents might like, because like the experiences we're having are are excess, you know. It's the same feelings anyone has. It, you know, excitement. Yeah, you want to share
0: it. You want to share it with somebody who would appreciate it. And yeah, you want it. To, you want you want to force them somehow to appreciate
1: it. It seems like you want to share things that you enjoy, and the inability to share them is making me think about what's what's different about gaming because it seems like everyone's doing gaming, and yet I can't I can't share these experiences that I'm having except with the same like nerdy gamer people who have always been sharing these things. But isn't gaming popular now? Why you know and is is it just because are we ha- are they having exactly as much fun with angry birds as we're having with this i don't think they are i don't think angry birds is evoking the same kind of emotions that and and experiences uh, to the level that the, the, game, the kind of games i'm playing are uh so it's not a we're better than you and we're the gamers and you're the non-gamers that's totally not what it's about that's why i'm saying it's not a value judgment there's nothing you know it is what it is. I'm just trying to to, to to call it the way I see it. Certain skills have a lower prevalence in the general population. And, it, you know, I, I'm sure this is exactly true of many other things that I'm missing out on because I don't have the skills. Dancing would be one of those, for example. Uh, but it, for me as a gamer, it's, it made me think about this. The other thing I think about, and this is gaming in general, is that my parents were very anti-video game as many parents of my generation, uh, you know, parents of kids of my generation were. Why were they anti-video game? It's hard to really explain. It's just kind of like scary about the new thing. It's kind of like rock and roll. The kids with their music and their video games. Uh, but they were very anti-gaming. And didn't allow me to have game consoles in the house. So, of course, I bought every Mac game known to man, which they apparently found was okay. Because computers are educational. Anyway, parents, <laughs> make, parents make no sense. Uh, but then when I went on to my adult life, of course, I you know bought game consoles and played games or whatever. And, and as I was changing from teenager into adult my parents would frequently ask me when are you going to stop playing these video games when are you going to grow out of this like because video games came along when we were kids it was seen as a kid activity that rots your brain and there's nothing useful about it and they didn't believe it when i tell them oh i'm learning x you know whatever they can't be convinced but they always asking me when even now they say are you still playing video games despite the fact that they will play casual games and stuff like that they see a distinction you know they're they're, they're doing their crossword puzzle on their ipad that's not gaming right uh and, you know, even though I have gotten them to try to play some other games, gotten some but they still see it as an activity that we should grow out of. And I always tried to give the analogy of like, well, when did grandma and grandpa stop playing Pinochle? Like, did they stop playing that when they, you know, they played that their whole life. They learned it when they were kids and they played it basically till the day they died. And no one ever asked them, when are you going to stop playing Pinochle? Isn't that a kid's game? They'd meet with all their retired friends and play that like every week. And no one, no one gave them a hard time about it, you know. Or Swim's uh, in the chat room says, or bridge, or any of these other things. Like certain games, you know, because they were involved cards or whatever, they, they were grandfathered in, right? But video games, that's something different, right? Uh, <laughs> and I would always try to give that, and they, the, the analogy bounced off. They didn't accept it, but. This another thing that made me think about. Well, so what's different about gaming? Why do they not accept that analogy? Because to me, it seems straightforward. And I think one of the reasons they don't accept it is because the things they see me doing are things that they've tried to do and have not been able to do, and just it's inaccessible to them. Whereas they can play pinochle bridge if they learn the rules. Maybe they're just not into it. But it's not. It's not like this. This thing that's. this other right it's still seen as this other thing that the kids do that i'm not a part of and can't be a part of and don't want to be a part of and don't don't understand what it is that they're getting out of it and i don't think my parents do understand what i get out of gaming because they've never shared that experience
0: even from watching your level of enjoyment there that's they don't they don't
1: I think it's different. I think gaming really is a weird form of art because it's partially participatory, and that and that your enjoyment is based on that participation. That's also what makes it great: is that you are making part of the experience yourself. I think that's what gives you the tie to the experience because you made it happen. It didn't. Just, it wasn't just. It you didn't just read the book and watch the movie. It didn't just unfold before you. You know, it's the cooperation between you and you know, it's the two way communication across time between you and the creator of this game, creating an experience that's unique to you that you have an investment in. And I don't know if you can explain that to somebody if they haven't experienced it. I think a lot of gamers can't even articulate it. I have trouble articulating but I know certainly in lots of other gamers, like they know they like games and they play them obsessively. And sometimes they complain about them constantly. I listen to one podcast where all they ever do is complain about how horrible games are. And yet they play like every single, any time a new game's out that comes out, they buy it and they try it. And they say, it's horrible. Like they're they're chasing that high. They want that experience. I don't know if most gamers can articulate what it is they get out of gaming, but they know it's something, right? and that's why i think it's so difficult for non gamers quote unquote using my definition of the hardcore things to to understand what's going on there even if you explain it to them because they haven't experienced it themselves and maybe they maybe they just never will and so they'll just keep asking when are you going to stop playing those games cuz it doesn't make sense to them <laughs> another example from the chat room saying uh base jumping or proximity flying those things where they jump yeah, have you seen those videos where they have the wing suits look like you're flying squirrel yeah those are real apparently yeah, uh, real and they kill people. <laughs> yeah, That's that's an extreme example where I think in those cases where there's danger involved, people are comfortable with the notion that the thrill of doing that, like just the thrill of watching that is pretty high. And you can imagine, man, the thrill of doing that. I'm never going to experience that because I do not have those skills. But people are okay with that. Because like on the other hand, my chances of dying are probably decreased over the people who jump off the cliffs with those things and skim the earth at hundreds of miles an hour. Uh, yeah. So, th- and that's, that's another thing that people are okay with because you know well I'm maybe this because they have a rationale but they're like well that's dangerous you know i i'm never going to be able to experience that but that's dangerous and what portion of the population have have the the skills and intestinal fortitude to do that it's a small one but that's that's a dangerous thing gaming is not dangerous you're sitting on a couch uh so i guess you have to come up with another reason why you're not going to experience that and you just say it's it's not that interesting or I, I don't understand what they get out of it or they should just stop playing or it's silly you know, or they should just, you know, I'm getting everything they're getting because I get to play Angry Birds. All right, I don't know if I helped, helped to hurt my cause in that topic, but I, to, to reiterate, I, what I should have focused more on in, in the previous thing is that gaming seemed like a weird form of art to me mm-hmm. because they have this participatory skill element that excludes people from what I believe to be the very best it has to offer and very few other forms of art. Are like that. I, th- I thought that that insight was helping me when I was thinking about it. It was illuminating the whole frustration I feel about trying to share this thing I love with other people who, uh, in ways that I think they could enjoy, not just like you have to enjoy everything that I enjoy, but like gaming is this vast field, and this particular game I believe you would really enjoy it because, like, I often think like if this was a movie, you would love this movie. You know, because I know you or whatever, like, like Portal, you know, my, my wife loves Jonathan Colton. She loves those songs. She loves that kind of humor. She watch she loves Firefly, watched, you know, she's just right exactly in the sweet spot for Portal, but is held back by the skills she doesn't have. And it's, it's sad to see her not be able to get everything out of the game and spend lots of time worrying about like bumping her virtual head into walls and not making jumps and stuff like that. So there we go.
0: Let's do our second sponsor in between, in between this and your next topic. Okay that be acceptable? Yes. It's squarespace.com. Everything you need to create an amazing website. Been telling everybody about this stuff. They just lowered their prices. We'll start with that. It's eight bucks a month. Which it doesn't seem like a lot. It's not a lot. But you know what it is? It's enough for you to understand the relationship that you have with these guys. It's not free. And it's not a free service. You can try it for free. You don't need to give them a credit card or anything like that. But you're, you get what you pay for, and you should pay for something like this because what they offer you is really amazing. This is a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining, and that's the important part, maintaining a beautiful website, blog, portfolio. This is for anybody who wants to have an awesome website, even a podcast. It doesn't matter. You don't have to struggle with tools. You don't have to worry about security. You don't have to worry about scaling. They do everything. You want to go and launch a website? Have a beautiful design in mind. You can take that design. You can integrate it with these guys. And if you need help, they have twenty four seven support. You call them up, and they will help you—a real person. Uh, again, it's only eight bucks a month. There's a the, their their full monster plan. Their huge unlimited plan is sixteen bucks a month. So if you're thinking about deploying a website that you've built or something that you've worked on, or the website for your company, check these guys out. And then you don't have to worry if the, the, the person, you know, your CEO or the marketing person or your client wants to update the content. You can do that because it's so easy to use and you don't have to worry that they're going to go and break something. It's really great stuff. Squarespace.com. When you go there, take the tour, look at the examples. They've got an example uh, of, uh, tons of examples of amazing stuff that you can do with Squarespace. It looks nothing like a traditional blog because it doesn't have to. The way things are set up there, go check these guys out. Squarespace, and here's the thing: uh, use this coupon code. Dan sent me and number four, all one word. Dan sent me four, and uh, you will get thirty percent off for three months, even off the ridiculously uh, low rate already. I don't know how they do it. You should take advantage of it. Squarespace.com.
1: So I thought I was done with the gaming, but a few more comments in the chat room have reminded me of a couple other tangential things related to it. I think I also talked about these last show, but uh, it's worth talking about more. Uh, many people, because many people wrote in about this too, and they would point out that in various games, including Portal, they have something where you start the game where they try to teach you how to play the game within the game world using some sort of device layer in Halo, they're like, okay, check check your, you know... Charge uh, up your view suit. screen, yeah, And view, look to the left, then try shooting these targets to make sure because you were being, uh, you know, restored from cryogenic sleep or whatever in the original Halo. Then test your weapon. Try this target and that target. They're teaching you to play the game, and they're trying to ease that ramp. They're not going to dump you in and say, okay, you know how the first-person shooter works. Just go. Uh, and, although many people do. They put these tutorial training or, you know, some other part of the game with some sort of framing device to basically teach you the skills you're going to need to play this game successfully before bringing you into it. I, and that's just trying to broaden the base for the game because I believe the game makers want, I mean, the, the the cynical one is like, oh, they want to make the most money, so you want the most people to be able to buy the game. But I believe the game makers want the most number of people to enjoy this great game they've made. They want them more people to get the experience. So they have these tutorial levels to the point where they're, the, the uh, you know the common stereotype now is that, uh, the the annoying tutorial levels bother the gamers. Like yeah, right. You you have to tell me every single thing in the game. I think I mentioned this in the last show where there's little bubbles popping out at you. Like this is a health pack. Run it over to increase your health. When your health goes to zero, you are you know all. And the gamers are like feel that that is unnecessary and condescending, and it bothers them. uh, uh And the best games, like the gamers appreciate the games that. Seamlessly integrated into the story so it doesn't it seems less like a tutorial level and it can actually even be kind of fun, even though they already know all the things you're being taught uh, and maybe they can just use that as a time to to figure out what key bindings they want to use for this particular game. Uh, but I think that go, d- goes not very far in making gaming accessible because I've seen this happen many times where I've tried to get someone to play a game where the tutorial level really does hold their hand and teach them about the game. But then when you get dumped into the game proper especially if the game have like adversarial entities that are coming to get you. And you have to, you know, going from I've successfully completed tutorial. I know how to look up, look down, shoot things or whatever to now a whole bunch of enemies are going at me and I'm jumping from platform to platform and flipping around in midair and shooting. You know, this is first person shooter. But any type of thing where the there's quite a cliff from the tutorial level to the game, because a lot of games for the game proper there's no two ways around it. You're just this, you know, you're going to have to have skills. Zelda games are a good example of this, but Zelda usually have a very gentle introduction and a really, really smooth scale. Well, the first dungeon is really simple and the enemies are not very difficult. And there's lots of health items like it's, you know, these games are like 70 plus hour games to complete, you know, by someone who's, a, who's an experienced gamer. Lots of time for them to ramp. That, I feel like, is it's good to have that smooth ramp, but it's almost cruel because you know if you've played a Zelda game, at a certain point, midway through or towards the end, the bosses are going to get hard. Not not like impossibly hard for gamers, but impossibly hard for a lot of people who could successfully navigate the first dungeon, the second dungeon, the third dungeon. And then how do they feel having invested 15 hours in this game and having hit a wall where the game isn't fun anymore? They can't get to the rest of the game because they've reached a limit of their skills. I. I don't know what that's like. I've never seen one go, someone go through that. I've seen them bounce off much sooner. Like, they can do the first dungeon, barely, and that's it. And they get to the first boss battle, and they say, oh, this is too hard, and they don't go through. Uh, even if they try to persevere, and they just, like, you know, you, you talk to some people who are mostly non-gamers who get into games for whatever reason, and they're like, man, I spent, you know, six weeks trying to beat the first boss in this dungeon or whatever. And, you know, the gamer reaction, you could laugh at them, oh, you had trouble with that boss, it's not hard. But, they, you know, <laughs> I, fe- I feel for these people because... Like there's somebody who who has realized there's something that these gamers are getting that they might want to get in on and just tried their hardest and just didn't get through uh, it's like the person who decides that you know again using sports analogy that they want to be a surfer and they and they just try to surf all summer for like five summers in a row and they just they just never are able to do it and that's kind of sad so I, I don't know what the solution is there is a solution to not have those tutorials or to have a smooth ramp like Zelda or like you know th- those are all ways to try to address this issue but all of them, I believe, run into the fundamental barrier which is that the skills that these types of games require are just not that common uh, and not easy to learn and sometimes not possible to learn. And so... I, I don't know if they're doing a disservice by having a smooth ramp. Maybe, maybe if you play the first four dungeons in Zelda, you've gotten your money's worth of enjoyment out of that. That's another thing I don't like. I shouldn't have said that. The whole idea of that there's some money's worth of enjoyment out of, out of games. That, the, that connection is not.
0: Well, you always hear that, though, in the game reviews. You'll hear people oh. saying, oh, you know, I, I, this game took, and I'm always kind of shocked by the what seems to these experts, because I am by no means an expert player of any game and these games take me way longer to get through than the, the i guess the the people who are playing these games like every day like they have games you know that they just blaze through but you always hear that complaint it only took me 2 hours and 47 minutes to complete this game i was expecting more for my money you hear that all the time
1: yeah that that relationship between the amount of money you paid and how and some other thing that you can measure to say whether i got my money's worth out of this thing That's just a weird artifact of the way the games business worked and the average length of games and how much money it costs to produce a game. and This conglomeration of events leads to people who are not very thoughtful deciding that X number of dollars equals X number of time to complete the game by by an expert gamer. And why time is... Uh, you know, like that's. I guess that's all they have to go by. How many hours did it take you to complete? How much money did you pay? I will divide those numbers and tell you. You know, a ratio, and this ratio was unsatisfying. It makes no sense to me whatsoever because, like, it doesn't happen in you know in in other media. I I guess maybe because, like, for example, movies are usually around two hours, but no one comes out of a ninety-minute movie that was awesome and says, "Well, the movie was awesome," but. For the amount of money I bought that ticket, I really think it should have been a full two hours. If it's an awesome ninety-minute movie, it's an awesome ninety-minute movie, right? And at the same token, if it's a three-hour movie, and it sucks. You're like, oh my god, that was a three-hour movie. I could not take that. It was horrible. Like, I but there think has to the be changing. there has to
0: be a limit to that. There has to be like. If a game only takes an average player an hour to finish, there's probably a lot of people who would be disappointed, even if it was an amazing hour, right?
1: It depends on how amazing an hour is. Again, I'll point to Journey. <laughs> Journey is a game that took me two hours to complete, and yeah, it only cost $15. I would have gladly paid way more than that because there are so many games that I can buy for 50 or $60 that will take me 10, 20 hours to complete that I would not enjoy, you know, 1,000th as much as I enjoyed Journey. And mm. that's the what the measurement I get out of it is like. It, these things do cost a certain amount of money, and you're spending your your entertainment budget on this thing. And my view is, if I spent that same amount of money on some other activity, would, have I, would I have gotten more enjoyment out of it? And that other activity isn't necessarily buying another game. That's the one they always do. It's like, well, I spent $60 on this, and it was only four hours long, and so I'm mad. It's like, okay, so if you had spent that $60 on a different a game... Would you have gotten more enjoyment out of that twenty-hour game than you got out of the out of this four-hour game? Maybe you would have. Maybe it's just because it's not a good game. But does it have anything to do with the length, particularly? I don't think it does. I, I've never made that connection. Uh, if anything, you know, as you get older, it tends to be the reverse, where you're like, "Am I going to put in seventy hours into a seventy-hour game like Zelda? Am I going to really get seventy hours worth of enjoyment out of that?" Uh, and many people decide that no, I can't put like you know. For my thing, it's like MMOs. I think I might enjoy MMOs, but. I mean, A, I've got the, the RSI issue, which a couple of readers brought up where there's like a physical limit. And then B, the amount of time investment that an MMO takes to really get the best out of it. If you just don't have that kind of time, that would not be a wise investment of your $60. You'd be better off buying a four-hour game for $60 because you wouldn't enjoy that MMO because of the amount of time you have to put in. And you'd be like, oh, stealing time from your other activities that you could be doing other things that you could be sleeping, you know. Uh, neglecting family obligations or if you just simply don 't have time in your schedule, you paid sixty dollars for what for more stress and aggravation in your life and never getting to the real enjoyment uh so i this is not I think that the enlightened more enlightened game reviewers know that this is ridiculous, uh but even they have to catch themselves for like you know judging games based on well this game wasn 't great, but it 's only a fifteen dollar game and well, this game was sixty dollars, and I really enjoyed every second of it, but it was only. Ten hours long or nine hours long, and really they should be twelve or fifteen. Why? Because like the average length of a sixty dollars game in the year two thousand and X is uh, twelve hours long. Uh, uh, some in the chat room points out that uh, the other thing is that you know not everyone completes games. I would love to know the percentage of the people who complete games. Maybe people buy a game and uh, just play it a little bit and get what they think is a reasonable amount of enjoyment out of it stop, or they get frustrated because they stop, or you know whatever reason. But game reviewers in general still feel that they need to complete a game, and I think that is a reasonable. Uh, thing to say and so they're the ones who are saying they're the ones who are playing the games to completion so they can tell you about how the game ends or whatever or give some sort of judgment on the ending of the game and they're the ones constantly knowing okay well this game took this many hours to complete and you know and the average changes over time I don't know what the average length of games was 10-20 years ago but I guarantee you it's different than what it is now again it has to do with budgets and how much money it takes to make one hour worth of gameplay in a high definition 3D game versus how much it did to make the same amount of time on you know an NES or something. So this is quite an aside, uh, but maybe th- maybe I'll save this for a separate thing. The, the state of game criticism. Uh, there are probably much better people to talk about this than I have than I, uh, you know, because I'm not a professional game reviewer. But I've got an opinion. All right, so I didn't have I didn't have another topic rattling around in here. Yeah, I could probably do it quickly. I was debating. Not doing any notes for this topic because it's a visual-based one. I said, "What if I just didn't write anything? What if I just, uh, you know, wing it on the show? You know, kind of uh, the way you encourage Merlin to." Or you think if the shows are better if you don't have notes? But uh, you know, predictably, I wrote a whole bunch of notes. So maybe I'll maybe I'll try not to look at them. So this topic is the new Gmail user interface. Uh, you don't do you not use the Gmail web interface?
0: Never, all? never, 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 never. I think it's uh, awful i i mean i have used it in in absolute emergency situations Uh, you have a
1: gmail account then right
0: i have several gmail accounts which i never never really use they're sort of junk mail things from the days before i had better ways to deal with junk mail vestige vestigial things from a bygone era
1: what do you use your email hosting then
0: uh I unfortunately I use uh Google apps but I'm in the process of switching away from it but I never use the Gmail provided style interface for that I just use IMAP and I use Mail app uh for my email client and I yeah. also use Mail app on the on the iPhone uh for that as well uh but I'm in the process of moving away from that because I don't uh I don't want to use any Google services uh
1: anymore this is something that comes up people ask me about a lot both in real life and uh over email and stuff what what should I do about email it's mostly nerds asking that because regular people just use whatever the heck email address they got 10 years ago and never change it right uh, and my answer is not to do what I do it's to do what I wanted to do my answer if you are a nerd and you want to solve your email problems for all my current advice that and it's been this way for a long time is to buy yourself a domain name that you're happy with having as your email address forever just the domain name, not you know, hosting or an email or anything, and then forward that email address at that domain name to a series of different backends. So you would forward that email to Gmail. But then Google's out of business or starts being evil. So then you forward it to some other email provider. Or right. Then you buy you buy some hosting for email and you forward it. The whole idea is to uh, to loosely couple your email address from the service you use to provide it. That way, you would never have to tell people, "Oh, my email address has changed." Uh, you know, I'm moving to a different provider or whatever, because your email address will always, for the rest of your life, until the domain name system crumbles and they take the name away from you or whatever, be whatever your name is at whatever your domain you pick .com or .org or .net or whatever. Uh, That's the correct solution to email. And then all you're left with is, okay, what backend do I want to use? Who gives me the the best product for the right amount of money, with ads, without ads, IMAP? You can can shop around, change providers, and it doesn't provide disruption to your life this is still a pretty nerdy solution because regular people aren't going to buy no domains and really we don't need them to because every domain is taken already anyway. We don't need more contention for the domains. But that is what I would have done if I had ever been able to find a domain name that I found acceptable. You, may, you if you are a nerd, may also have this problem that you are super-duper picky about what things are named and then you may end up deadlocked like I am, frustrated by your inability to get the domain names you want and never finding one that you like. So that this is the curse of of being... A, obsessive compulsive nerd so I'm not doing that I'm just using Gmail but I actually do use the Gmail web interface uh, partially that's because my favorite client side uh, web interface we used to be Claris emailer and then that team's kind of moved to Microsoft and made the first versions of Entourage for classic macOS I like those and then macOS 10 came along and Entourage got worse on macOS 10 and kind of continued to get worse and then it was replaced with Outlook which is much much worse and so my favorite client side email apps basically left me like they're, they're still there and I still use them I use them to have a client side copy of every single one of my email ass- messages in fact I do that like, multiple clients just to have super redundant ultra local backed up backup of my email so that if Google goes away tomorrow I should only lose like a day's worth of local email or something uh, but I use the web interface most of the time and I actually like google's web interface at first i didn't because it was weird and i never used it and i'm like i'm just going to stick to my client side thing but slowly i came around to just basically through sheer ubiquity and having things synced up and and the reason i think i've went on some other shows but the main reason i like it is all the other email services that i had did not have a good representation of server-side rules and i get tons of email and i have tons of rules to sort it into different places and do different actions on it and stuff and having all of those rules centralized eliminated this this hassle that I always had, which was when I used a client side app, duplicating the rules in different places or not duplicating them or keeping them in sync and stuff like that. Uh, and so I you know it wasn't kind of a conscious decision. I just kind of drifted over to Gmail. First I was running both of them for a while, and then I found out I was not launching my local client, and then just now I'm completely on Gmail. Uh so I am a heavy user of Gmail, and yes, in the chat room I have tried Mailplane and Sparrow and those other things. So far, none of them have pulled me away from the, the uh, web interface. Uh, now, there's, there's what we're talking about, this new UI, it's basically like a new skin. Like, they didn't change the application dramatically, but it looks very different. And this new skin for Gmail has been in testing for a long time. It might even be over a year. Like,
0: And there was apparently there was, you could, I guess, the the days of being able to use the old one, are, are com- you're saying, are completely gone now. So everybody has to use this now.
1: I don't know for- if they're com- completely gone. Because, like, so here was the sequence. It was like, hey, uh, you're a Gmail user, and um, we're trying out this new look. Like, you'd see a little pop-up when you logged in. If you want to try the new look, click over here. And, you know, being the person I am, I immediately clicked and checked it out, and I didn't like it. Uh, and the next phase was you'd log in, and you'd have the new look. And you'd be like, whoa, look, you know, the, you know the, why do I have this? This is that thing that I didn't like from before, and it looks a little bit different, but I still don't like it. And then you go to the setting menus, and you'd see, like, change back to the old look. But the, they always say... Change back to the old look temporarily. And they would never tell you what temporarily meant, but it was clear that they were saying to you that like, all right, we'll give you the option to change back to the old interface. But this is temporary and eventually you're going to have to take it. And lo and behold, for me, like a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was just last week, that option disappeared. I logged in, I got the new interface, went to the settings menu, and, it did, and the little thing that used to be there that says revert to the old look temporarily was gone. Uh, and, you know, I knew this time was coming. That's what the word temporarily means. And so I have to just, you know, bite the bullet. And, uh, you know, for a while I tried to keep the web browser that had the had the old Gmail look still on it, not ever close that window. But then I, I accidentally <laughs> I accidentally did a Google Chrome update. Like one morning when I went into work, I just... You tweeted little, about that,
0: didn't yeah. you, when you did that?
1: I obeyed the little icon that said, you know, update Chrome. And then as it's re- restarting, I'm like, no, I lost my... <laughs> <laughs> There are a bunch of hacks out there to try to get the old look back. But I, at this point, I'm like, uh, you know, don't, I'm not going to fight it. This is the look. This is what I have to deal with. Uh, so when I saw the original look, it was like, try out our new look, check it out. Uh, the the uh, first complaint right off the bat from almost everybody who used it who was like a hardcore Gmail user was that the information density had decreased drastically. Like, you, you know, try out your new look, and all of a sudden your screen that used to be able to fit 50 messages on it now it fits like 20. And that's not good if you get a lot of email. You know, they put a lot of white space and padded it out or whatever. Uh, and I didn't like that. Um, and then they had options to like say, okay, well, that's the new look. But you can have, a you know, the, the compact version or the comfortable version or the cozy version. All sorts of spacing adjustments to try to give you preferences, which to an Apple user, it's like, look, if you have to provide 20 different options for how a UI should look, maybe there's something wrong with your UI. But on the other hand, as a tech nerd, you're like, well, thank God these options are here. Because then it's less hideous than it was. Uh, and I remember when they first rolled the thing out, even the tightest setting was still way too wide for me. So I just said, I'm not going to look at that for a while. I'll change it back to the old logo. Hopefully, they'll they'll address that. Around the same time, I guess this must have been, uh, maybe it was after this, but this was 2008. I hope I pronounced his name right. This is someone whose blog I read all the time, and I realized that I've never said his name to anyone. Koi Vin? Do you know who he is? Yeah, Koi
0: Vin, the... Uh- he's quite a well-known uh, designer has little batman uh, as his uh, avatar adam west yes did some uh, new york times work apparently very quite yeah, quite a was, smart smart guy who now has a successful ios app under his uh, under his belt too
1: yeah he was the i don't know what his title was but he was basically like the web the head web designer dude at the new york times which is quite a position and he led uh their, their, sort of, you know, the big changes in what their web present was. But then he left to go his, his own thing. But I've been reading his blog at subtraction.com for a long time. And in 2008, he had a post that was pleading with, with uh, Google people at Gmail like, you know, the Gmail UI, like, it doesn't have to be this ugly. Like, he just took the exact page the way it was laid out and said, if you just use some basic uh, sensible design parameters for line spacing and lining things up and, you know, just just realign stuff, it would look so much better. So I made a link to this post uh, in the show notes. You should take a look. He's got a mouse over thing where if you roll your mouse over it shows here's the 2008 Gmail as it exactly exists and then take your mouse out and here's his revised version. And all it is is spacing tweaks. Tiny, tiny spacing tweaks. But uh, maybe this is a good litmus test to see are you kind of like a designery type of nerd but if you look at the two and you're like yeah, I can't you know, better or worse are the same they're like, whatever, they're the same thing. But to me, his version is just like oh, like a breath of fresh air compared to the other version. It just looks hideous, right? So I think since that time in the the old Gmail UI, Google did adjust their spacing and try to make things better. They were always constantly tweaking their UI. So it seems like they took some of that to heart, whether they read it or not. You know, they got better designers to to space things out. Um, but the new look is is a further realignment. And I think he would, uh, Coy would mostly approve of the new look in terms of line spacing and stuff. Like it's a little bit still haphazard, but it's much more coherent than the first slapdash version they put up there that totally looked like it was laid out by programmers and probably was. Uh, so now that I'm forced to use this new look, here are my complaints about it uh, that now I, I'm forced to just live with. Uh, so the information density, believe it or not, I don't know if it's identical to what it was, but it's at the point now where that's not my primary complaint about the thing. I'm not saying I can't see as many messages on the screen. Uh, they've tightened it up a lot. And whatever the, the top-level choice is, when we well, look at it, it's I have mine on Compact. Cozy is the next one up. And then Comfortable is the one that spaces it <laughs> out more. I don't, these names, terrible choices. They're
0: very technic highly technical names that are not at all open to opinion or anything yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. So... So that's not my main complaint. So it's good that they addressed that, you know, from all the complaints about the first version, this was way too big. Uh, I would have to see a side-by-side comparison with the old one to see if it really is exactly the same density, but it's better. Uh, But the main complaint I have with it now and also the complaint I'm seeing from other people, I don't know how to express this, but visual landmarks are not as prominent. Like the things that your eyes grab onto if you can imagine your eyes kind of like skittering across the surface and looking for things to grab onto, uh, a lot of the familiar signposts have been moved. And it's worth pointing out that anytime any app hat or website or anything has a new look, there's this knee-jerk reaction to dislike it. Yeah, reject it. Because oh, it's, well, it's not like it used to look, especially if it's something like like Gmail that you look at all the time and you're constantly looking at, like, looking at subject lines, looking at messages, finding that button to hit reply, like just the who moved my cheese thing. It's like, oh, it's different. I just don't like it. It's different, right? So you have to totally recognize that that's a thing and examine it and say, do I dislike it just because it's different? uh, Or are there actual problems here? Uh, And there is aspect of, of having moved things, but I, I feel like personally, if I, after I've used something for a week or so, I'm usually willing to go with it. I'm the type of person who likes the new shiny version of something. And by the way, if the new thing is attractive, that goes a long way. That's why Apple gets away with a lot of stuff where, if they give you a totally new version of an application that everything is moved and you totally can't find stuff anymore, but man, it looks really nice, that goes a long way, to at least um, among certain class of nerds, to letting you accept these problems. Uh, so I don't particularly like the new look of the new Gmail interface. Uh, so that's not helping me there. Uh, and so practically speaking, the visual landmark thing is even after like a week or more of use, I'm finding it difficult for my eyes to... Follow what's going on. Uh, so let's start with like the message list where you've got this, a checkbox and a little star icon and a little important tag. So elements that were, if not exactly in the same place, that existed in the other thing. They are light gray outlines on either a white or slightly lighter gray background. Not a lot of contrast. And I think that's part of the theme of this UI is like lots of white space. Not a lot of hard border lines. They even have a high contrast theme that tries to crank this up because they realize it's an issue. A little high contrast one is even more ugly. They're trying to not have like lines around everything. But the effect is that these elements that used to give you an anchoring port for each kind of like message are just... They're, they're so faded that I can imagine like people might not even be able to see them. Like if your eyesight is not that good. Uh the worst one for me, uh, you should actually, you should pull up the Gmail interface if you haven't already. So you can look at this and tell me if I'm crazy. Just just pull up one of your accounts and go to the compact mode. Uh, This might be difficult for you to see. You might have to label some messages. But I, I, since I do all the sorting of email and everything, I've got labels on like everything.
0: Compact mode enabled.
1: Yeah. And do you have like messages with labels? They might just all say inbox. Go to the all mail view and you might just see a bunch of things that say inbox. But if you could label stuff as other random stuff. The labels, which I, I use labels and everything, and I didn't realize how much I relied on them visually to see where things are. I tend not to color my labels. I have a few colored labels, but I don't want to look like a Christmas tree, right? So most of my labels are just the default whatever color. Too jarring if you use the colors? Yeah, I don't It's just too much. I want, the, like, I, I want color to be an emphasis for things that should stand out, not just for me to have to parse stuff. But the default color for the labels, it looks to me like a film negative. It looks to me like when you did like control, option, you know... Command-Shift-8 when you do the invert screen, like keyboard shortcut on Mac OS X, they look reversed to me. It looks negative. And my eye just, just cannot parse like the darker gray text inside the slightly lighter gray outline inside the slightly lighter gray uh, line item for the message. I, it literally hurts my eyes to look at my labels. I don't I can't maybe a designer can tell me why is it that these things bother you they they almost flip and invert in my mind maybe I have a visual impairment or something but I just cannot see them and every time my eye comes over to that section of the thing it just I don't know it's like it's not like a spotlight shining at me it's like something it's visually <laughs> offensive it like bothers my eyes and it makes me not be able to read what those things are it's a struggle and it's eye straining and it just and it looks inverted to me I would love for someone who knows something about visual science to look at the Gmail interface and say why does this remind me of a film negative? Why does it look inverted? I because I couldn't tell you. Maybe it's because the the contrast ratio between the background and the foreground is not sufficient or that if I if I did really did invert it, it would be a more familiar con- uh, kind of contrast. I don't I don't even know. But this is really the combination of this lack of visual landmarks and the section that I can't even look at because it hurts my eyes is making it harder for me to latch onto where things are in the interface, like looking at individual messages or looking at what new things have come and stuff like that, uh, and this continues onto the the uh, conversation view where it shows the the threaded email messages, like kind of collapsed up like an accordion. There used to be very distinct kind of pleats in the accordion from a collapsed message and one message on top of the other, and they again they cranked down the contrast and everything and faded everything out to the point where when I see a long message thread. With things expanded or collapsed, it's very difficult for me to see where one message ends and another begins and and latch on to where the name of the person is and the different fields in the messages and stuff like that. It just kind of like all blends together into this big white thing that I don't like. And it makes parsing conversations more difficult. Like when I'm looking up to see how many messages there are, where there was a particular message, lots and lots of low contrast thin lines. And I think they're trying to do it to get rid of visual noise. And trying to form it with white space instead, but they're they're doing it wrong. I think. I think when you when you, if you want to make an interface that's defined by white space, you still need bold things demarking the space. You can't just have a big giant sea of medium grays with slightly darker and slightly lighter things in them because it just all kind of blends together. Uh, and there are functional aspects too. Like a lot of times, I want to like sort of expand the header to see more information about the sender, and they buried lots of stuff under like little pop up menus that are not easy to discover and annoying to click on to see like, what if I just want to see more information about this? I find myself doing the view original so I can just look at the actual mail headers to give myself a fighting chance of, of getting this information. Uh, similar changes up in the top bar where they used to have all the buttons to like refresh your mail or perform actions. They did the Apple thing. I, I, I don't know if I've ever done an iPhoto 11 rant, but I should probably add that somewhere before they fix it or make it worse. Maybe I'll add a second rant to it. Uh, they buried lots of controls that used to be top-level controls under like a more menu. Uh, and I guess they're doing that for visual neatness, but I never think that's a good idea to just bury everything under a single thing. And, and the second thing they do is they, they want it to not look cluttered in normal use, so lots of options don't even appear until you select a message and do the checkbox. And then all of a sudden the navigation changes. And so it means that the Options available to you in the toolbar are constantly changing and shifting. So the button for one thing might not be in the same place because it gets shifted. Like the more menu, for example, when you have a a, a message selected, the more menu is over like three inches from when it's not selected. And that kind of things of jumping around bothers me. They also changed all by default, changed the toolbar buttons to be images instead of text. And initially I'm like, you can't tell what the images are because like the images for archive is like a, a silhouette of a of a box with an arrow going down on it. <laughs> and then report spam <laughs> is an octagon with an exclamation point in it, like a stop sign exclamation point. These are all gray, by the way. Of course, they're gray. They're all not right. colored at uh, And the delete button, I guess, is a trash can. That, that kind of reads. And then the label one looks like a tag. But the, the choices for archive and report spam are not obvious buttons. And as soon as you mouse over them, you get a little tooltip. You know, you get the mystery meat navigation or whatever. But that is the case where the, when I started using it, I was like, where the hell is the archive button? Because I hit archive a lot where, where is the button? Where is the archive button? And, and you know, I use keyboard shortcuts for a lot in Gmail. People ask me how I can manage to use Gmail. Most of the time I'm using kind of like a VI user, but certain functions for whatever reason, I haven't ever assigned keyboard shortcuts to. I don't know. Why do I not have archive as A? Let me see Does A actually do anything? Yeah, that actually does archive. I don't know why I don't hit it. I don't know why I go to the archive button, but I, but I, I find myself doing it. Uh, same thing with report as spam. A lot of things I have keyboard shortcuts, but a lot of things I don't for whatever reason. Um, And I would go up for the button, and I'd have to wait for the tooltip to appear. And you know, like, there's nothing infuriates me more than having to put my mouse over something and wait for the tooltip to come up to see what the hell the thing does. Because seriously, like, what's going on here? That's not the way a UI should work. I have found that over the week and a half of use, my brain is starting to learn what the symbols mean, and it's happening less. And there is an option to change all of those to text. So I tried that. I'm like, well, maybe, you know, let me just get rid of these inscrutable pictures and, and replace text labels, which is what they used to be. They used to be, like, buttons, like actual native buttons and then they change to like those fake native buttons that they can do where you can style buttons inside a web browser to try to look consistent across platforms, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I changed it to the text, but the text was worse. Because then I found myself reading the text. I'm like, why am I reading this text? I never read the text before. I think it's because the buttons move around more and I feel more discomfort about I have to read it to make sure I'm clicking the right button. Whereas before, I don't think I was reading the text. I think I was just jamming my mouse cursor up to the archive button because it was always in the same place in the same context. Maybe it's still in the same place and I just haven't learned that place. I don't know. But I ended up changing back to icons. So I, I would call that a wash so far. Uh, and I think the main problem with the icons is just the images themselves aren't great. The idea of icons, I think, is okay. Uh, and, and especially since people like me should really be using the keyboard shortcuts for everything. And I mostly do. So it's just kind of like a deficiency in my own workflow where certain functions for various reasons have not ended up becoming programmed into my fingers as keyboard shortcuts. And by the way, I mentioned because I said that's like VI users. I mean, these keyboard shortcuts are single letter presses, like the same way I read Net Newswire or, you know, used to read Usenet using Tin. Uh, Gmail can work the same way. And I think that's one of the reasons that power users like it uh, and that desktop clients are, are starting to emulate that. It's like, oh, you can use all your Gmail keyboard shortcuts on our desktop client. That's, that's kind of a, a strange turn of events where a desktop piece of software is trying to lure people from the web thing by giving them the interface that they're used to. like In other words, the web interface has uh, user experience advantages that the desktop thing must at least match and provide, because if you don't, it's not as good. Uh, so what else about this UI? I think I'm at the end of my notes here. When you look at it, is there anything that jumps out as you as evil? I know you don't want to use the web interface at all, but...
0: Well, I mean, you know, I was never a fan of the old one, and to me, not not being a a extreme, maybe you're an extreme user, not being an extreme user of this thing. I I look at it and I think, you know, it looks fine. It's not a lot of color. It's kind of an anemic looking interface overall. Um, I don't like the way that they do the tags either. It seems like they're kind of in the way. What I don't, what I see is tags are actually how I've organized things in, or labels rather, uh, how I've organized them in, in folders On the Mac, in the Mac client. But it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's weird because there's this very minimalist vibe to it, but it doesn't quite get it. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah. I, that's what I, like I said, I think they're going for. They want, I mean, but it doesn't, but they didn't
0: get it. They, they, They didn't get it. That when you, when you go for a minimalistic approach, what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be taking the things that are, The essentials, and putting them first and foremost, making sure you can do those, and then letting more advanced actions, you know, making them findable and being
1: able to explore them gracefully. And I don't think that's even appropriate for them. Like it's like it's like if Photoshop came out and said we're going to go for a minimal interface and the UI look like the UI for Acorn or something. (laughs) That's not what Photoshop (laughs) is about. Gmail for good or for ill is like this big hunk of thing with lots of features. So maybe your approach shouldn't be like Sparrow is minimalist, right? Right. Oh, yeah. That's what you go with. It's like there's a subject line that like you just really boil it down Steve Jobs style to just what you need. But people would have been even more pissed if Gmail did that because that's just like that's not their customer base. Gmail is a full featured lots and stuff. So given if you're not going to change the entire nature of the product, which I don't think they should because that would just make people even more angry, your strategy should be one that fits with your complicated piece of software. The strategy for making the Photoshop UI better is not to make it look like the Acorn UI. Because that's, it's just not, that's just not the way it is. It's not the same kind of application. And so it's like they want to have their cake and eat it too. they want like, well, we keep, we keep every single feature, right? Maybe we hide a little bit more under these little hidden menus to reduce visual clutter and use all these tricks. But no, we can't give up the labels and we can't give up the stars or the important tags or the little checkboxes or the actions you do or the menu at the top or, you know... They did hide contacts. See if you can figure out how to get to your contacts if you're in the web UI. It took me a, a good. Uh, 30 I already seconds. closed. I
0: already closed it down. You're gonna make me go back to it. Yeah, you
1: got to go back. to it. Go go oh, get the contacts. On. Now, first of all, the, the idea that contacts is not. I a couldn't stand thing. looking at it. It's not like contacts.google.com. Like so that's not where contacts live. Uh, contacts are part of Gmail, uh, and Gmail does an awful job of managing them, and I hate it. And maybe that's a whole other show. Uh, but you know, go go find contacts. I'm I'm looking.
0: It's not. I, it's, I was searching it's not chat. It's not circles.
1: Yeah, I was doing finds, find you know, find in your web browser for the text contacts,
0: right? Which
1: I have frequently. Ah, done. I like, see I, it.
0: I, okay, it's up in the top bar under more contacts, right?
1: Is that where you found it? That's. Oh, yeah. I see. Translate mobile books offers wallet shopping, blogger, reader, finance, Well, photos, again, I'm using,
0: I'm using the Google Apps version of... Ah, uh, it
1: might be different.
0: Maybe it is different. Yeah.
1: At the bottom of my more menu is an item called even more. That makes me cry. <laughs> that makes me cry. Like somewhere... <laughs> it's pretty bad. user interface designer is weeping quietly in a corner. It's like, no, it's you're, mis- you're missing the point. Your more menu has an even more item. Maybe, maybe contacts is under even more but where i found contacts was underneath the google logo do you see the word gmail in red yes so well no, now, now down, i'm down, well i turn it did down triangle
0: i did when i logged out of my uh, of my actual like google apps version of gmail and, uh, and going into the actual the actual gmail i see something that is somewhat different
1: yeah. So the Gmail thing has the little turning down triangle that indicates to you that has a pop-up menu or indicates to someone who knows. And that's the only indication, that tiny little triangle. And then underneath there you see contacts and tasks. Yeah. Took me a while to find that. Not good. Oh, and the other thing I want to complain about is that this is throughout. So you can tell this, the look for Gmail is a company wide visual realignment, which I applaud the idea of doing that instead of just letting everyone do what they want. Right. It just so happens they're all realigning under a look and style that I don't like and that I feel is not appropriate for their properties. Uh, and one aspect of it is that the way they indicate a selection is... Well, why is it not doing it? Maybe... <laughs> Even add, more. Yeah. Where is... Oh, there it is. All right. So the way they indicate the current uh, position of like your like your cursor, because you've got, you know, you can use the K key to move up messages and stuff like that, is... See if you can trigger this. Go into a message and then go back. Okay. And you should see a little blue border on the left side of the message you just went into, right? Do you see it? Yes. You can hit the K key and watch it move up. That's their indication. This is the current message, but it's literally two (laughs) pixels wide. Yeah. It is a two pixel, and it looks for all the world like a border because it is the border. They have made the left-hand border, which used to not exist on this thing. It just had the background image that went bled right to the edge. They made the left-hand border a two-pixel blue line. That is not easy to see. That is not obvious. It's replacing a greater-than sign kind of like carrot type thing. You know, Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a much better indication of, like, this is the current thing that I'm pointing to. Or a highlight would be even better, but God forbid they do a highlight, because then they have to figure out what all the highlighted versions of all these hideous colors are, and I don't even want to see what that would look like. But this is their this thing, this little line is a border, it's carried across many properties, where that's the way they indicate the currently selected thing. And I don't particularly like it visually, and I don't think it works that well. I think it's not obvious enough. Yeah, so... Do the themes,
0: be- do the color themes help you at all?
1: Oh, I tried them all. I went through all of them, like some save me themes. Somehow you have to, is there a Google Labs thing? I I tried all the themes. All of them were visually more offensive to me. And the high contrast one, like you would think, oh, isn't that better? Doesn't it help things? It just makes these really thick lines between all the other low contrast stuff. I think it makes it worse. You don't like like
0: the the HD themes, the wood theme or the desk theme? (laughs) Oh, no, not doing (laughs) it. You don't like seeing a a rough wood background behind your...
1: I don't need Hello Kitty and, and my you know I I I see people who do this. What about like my, the Android one? My mother has a theme that's like uh like the weather in the background, which is kind of neat, but I'm like, how do you look at that? It's like looking at a, a flea market painting constantly, you know? <laughs> I, just, I don't want to <laughs> read my email. I don't want to see like uh Seascape in the background. Yeah, like the painted velvet Elvis or something. Yeah. So I'm not into these themes. And then I like they have revised things. It is more dense than it used to be, and they're trying to do this this whole realignment thing. it's just it's just not working for me and I find it I find it ugly looking and it's hurting me during the day because it's making me less efficient when I do my email stuff and that's what I don't like about it. so if I could change back to the old one, I would, but I'm not going to go to heroic links to do so. I just hope they come out with better themes or maybe a labs thing or I use Chrome for my Gmail so I can't use grease monkey, but maybe there's an equivalent uh, you know Chrome extension that will do it. I don't know. So, we, you know, it's just deal with change. I'll I'll get by, but it's it's not. you will be all right. That's all I got today except for Instagram, which will continue to get shoved off.
0: It'll be shoved off so long it won't even be relevant anymore. Even if it is relevant right now, which I I would question. Yeah.
1: I'll, I'll keep, I think it'll still be okay to talk about next week. Okay. Maybe maybe I'll transfer that into an opportunity to finally talk about patents, which, I, which I've never talked about.
0: But not today. Not today. Today is not the right day for that. Yeah. Okay. So we're done then, is what, is what you're we talking We are. I believe we are. All right. Well, uh, you can go to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 65 and you will find all of the links that John Syracuse has carefully cataloged and organized uh, just for your reading enjoyment. We'd like to say thanks very much to dot uh, com, makers of the best help desk software in the business for subsidizing those links. And that's it. You can go, you can follow John on Twitter S I R A C U S A. And he promises if you follow him, he will follow you back. I do
1: not promise that.
0: And he will retweet everything you say. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, I think that's it, John. Where else can they? Because you don't have a blog. We can't talk about that.
1: You can find me if you search for John Syracuse's blog. There's one post. Syracuse.tumblr.com gets almost one post a year. (laughs) But it's a good post. I hope so.
0: (laughs) It better be. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back uh, next week. Same time. Have a good one. You too.